Welcome to the Rethinking Politics podcast, finding truth beyond the rhetoric. You're here with your hosts once again, and we are actually recording this in person together. So if it sounds like we're having way too much fun, that's the reason. We've conquered COVID-19 to bring this one side by side. Side by side. Well, sitting across from each other, but close enough. Yeah, basically. Speaking of having too much fun, we, we thought we'd do something a little bit different with this episode. We both of us recently just watched the the Hamilton Broadway recording that came out on on Disney Plus, and we are just stoked. It was absolutely fantastic to watch. I've listened to the music before, but actually seeing the performance was amazing. Surprisingly, I didn't have, you know, $800 and a couple of plane tickets to go see it in New York. So, so this is my first time seeing it and it was a real treat. And we thought we'd, we'd discuss a little bit of the things we learned from it and talk a little bit about Hamilton and see where it goes. Yeah, we've been big fans of the music for, what has it been, years? It's been years. It's been years. That's crazy. For years, pretty much since it came out, uh, Brad shared it with me pretty close to when it, not too long after it came out. I've loved it ever since. So we're excited to talk about it. We're excited that a lot more people are seeing it. So for those of you who have not yet seen it, like I said, you can check it out on, on Disney+. Plus. But I mean, I, I want to give you a little bit of a summary, a little bit of summary of the play. It's it's about Alexander Hamilton, who is one of the founding fathers, takes a snapshot of different times throughout the American Revolutionary period. You know, it starts actually at the beginning of, of the Revolutionary War, goes through the Revolutionary War, some of the events that happened there. And then it actually goes to post-war, looks at the founding, the creation of the United States as it stands now. And then it goes into Alexander Hamilton's political career, and then eventually his death. Spoilers, I know. But <laughs> hopefully you knew that Alexander Hamilton died. He's not still here with us. It's <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> really spoiled that for him, Brad. I don't know how you could do that to an audience who may have never seen it. Uh, see, this is what I'm talking about, us having too much fun being in person. <laughs> we'll Dan, see, Dan's see over here busting over my chops. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. But the advantage here is that I can reach over and punch him in the shoulder if, <laughs> if he gets too far, which I couldn't do before, so I'm pretty excited now about that. you hear a loud boom. That's the mic falling. <laughs> So, Hamilton. You know, the, the thing that I like probably the most about Alexander Hamilton, the, the musical, Hamilton the musical, sorry, not, not Hamilton the man. We, that's a different discussion. The thing I like about Hamilton the musical is that it spends so much time and it, it spends so much of the play talking about what happens after the war. Because when people talk about the American Revolution, it always seems like one event. You know, we always talk about the founders like it's this set group of people who had these set ideas who magically freed us from Great Britain and then created a government, right? And it almost seems like it happened within a matter of a couple of years. <laughs> we were just talking about how uh, I, I run into people who seem to think that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution happened simultaneously. And they certainly right? did not. <laughs> no, the number of years between them, you talk about, you know, 1776 and the, the major events that really started the war – to, you know, 1789 when the right. country is really created and actually up and running. That's that's a long time. That's over 20 years. Dan, Dan's looking at me like I'm crazy, <laughs> but 
Seventy-six to eighty-nine would be thirteen years. Hey, okay. I <laughs> I may have been thinking. Great. I may have been thinking of seventeen sixty-five. <laughs> some of the the event, events in Boston that started the revolutionary, not seventeen seventy-six. For more reliable information, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, my terrible math skills aside. In fact, there's there's a clip that I'd like to, to share with you guys from Hamilton that, that talks a little bit about that. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise. Empires fall. It's much harder when it's all your call All alone across the sea When your people say they hate you Don't come crawling back to me Da-da-da-da-da Da-da-da-da-da-da Da-da-da-da-da-da Thank you, King George, for that beautiful audio clip. It is beautiful. King George may be my favorite thing in the whole, in all of Hamilton. He certainly helps make it. He <laughs> is a, he is a real hoot. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. To sing love songs to the American colony <laughs> is just fantastic. Lin Manuel Miranda, what a, whatever else is said of him is is a genius. He may be a mad genius, but he's definitely a genius. Oh, if you watch the musical and you see Lin-Manuel Miranda playing Hamilton, he looks crazy. He has crazy <laughs> he does. eyes. He does. He's got this kind of intense look in his eye, that a light that you're like, Are you seeing that? You seeing what the same world I'm seeing? He, yeah, I, I, I would not want to meet him in a dark alley. I would be very concerned. Right. The kind of person who comes up with a hip-hop founding father's musical has got to be certifiably insane. But it works and it's incredible. King George says that because because he's, he's right. King George is right. Really, the American people, you know, you've thrown off Great Britain, but what have you really accomplished? Now what? And you can see that with other revolutions that have taken place. You know, you look at the French Revolution, which, which was soon after the American Revolution. And at the time, they, they thought they had accomplished so much. And yet, within a few years, things ended up kind of going back to where they were. You know, it didn't entail the freedom that their, the leaders of the revolution thought would happen, would naturally come as a result of the revolution, when really there's so much more that goes into it. Right. And if you're a student of revolutions, you find that's a very common theme, that you get you get people with, with grand ideas, they look at how the system is, they want something much better, they overthrow the system, and they substitute something different for a time. And it works, I was going to say more or less, but it's, it's always considerably less than more. And then before you know it, the system is slipped back into something akin to what it was before. And it makes sense that why that's the case, because you're basically dealing with all the same people and all the same problems. You just, you change a few pieces and it doesn't change everything. Which is why our American Revolution is so unique, is that unlike so many others, it really did have a very large impact that something came of it that has really lasted, which is really cool. Right. And that's something that we get to discuss and look at in Hamilton, you know, and they look at in Hamilton, the musical is, is how that was able to happen, how you're able to 
to create a government af- after such a extreme and violent change and have it last. Yeah. So in that line, there's actually another audio clip that I want to play. And this is actually, uh, it's Hamilton talking to George Washington. And this is towards the end of George Washington's second term in office. So George Washington, you know, he's the general who leads America to freedom. And he be- he becomes the first president. Obviously, one of the most famous, you know, presidents in American history. But what's so interesting and something that you don't think about is the fact that as the first president, he set precedent and he helped define really what it meant to be president and helped shape the government in so many ways, in so many subtle ways that you don't see on paper. You know, it's not like he he shaped the government by passing laws, by changing policy. He shaped the government by the simplest choices that he made on how large to have his staff be, on what things he chose to focus his time on, on the fact that he refused to have any title besides Mr. President. You know what I mean? That's something that's famous now, but that's some such a small thing that has helped shape what the presidency is. Right. It establishes a cultural cultural changes and, and like you said, a lot of those are practical. Like if you look at if if you look at people who are reading the Founding Fathers today, they're looking for political philosophy and they're looking for uh, political wisdom, you know, uh, practical principles about how to design things and make things work together. Um, Washington doesn't offer any of those. What we have it is, as Brad said, just kind of his practice. What did he actually do? Like at the constitutional conventions, he didn't offer anything. He presided in silence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Washington was never a policymaker. Never a theorist, never a legislator. Yeah. Yeah. Political philosophy, political anything was not his, his forte. You know, I mean, really he was a military man and that's where he, he, he really, shown was as a military man, was as a man of action, a man who got things done. And as president, you see the same thing. You know, I mean, when I look at George Washington as a president, there are lots of his policy decisions that I completely disagree with. I think he was completely wrong on them, but it doesn't stop me from being eternally grateful (laughs) for him as the first president. I would not want anyone else (laughs) as the first president, even if I agreed with 100% of their political principles because of how much of an influence his non-political decisions had yeah. on shaping shaping and limiting the federal government the way that it did. It could have become something very different. That'd be, that'd be interesting. Can you imagine somebody with that kind of reputation and celebrity today without a political reputation, you know, without it being part of one side or another? It's hard to even imagine. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had universal admiration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it was not just his – I mean, he wasn't even a member of a political party. It was just the people who loved him, all the people. Anyways, now I'm going to play that clip. I want to warn against partisan fighting. Pick up a pen, start writing. I want to talk about what I have learned. The hard-won wisdom I have earned. As far as the people are concerned, you have to serve. You could continue to serve. One last time. Say you're weak. No, they will see we're strong. Your position is 
leaves me when I'm gone. So when I first heard this, listening to the music from Hamilton, I was awestruck that they chose to focus on this because because it, it truly was a a milestone for for our our country when the president stepped down willingly before he died, before he was too old to serve, and a new president came into office without there being any violence. Like that seems normal because that's how every election goes. You know, every four years we get a, a new president or we don't, you know, but every few years we get a new president and and no one dies in that process. And that just seems normal, but that's not normal. For, for someone to have that much power and to and to give it up and for someone else to take the reins smoothly is is unusual and it's something that George Washington made happen by his decision to step down before he needed to yeah, and it, it's it really isn't the standard you look at you look at other historical historical examples of revolutions followed by their first key leader that everybody respects. In our case, it's Washington. Washington had the reputation from being a general. He was, that's why they invited him to the Constitutional Convention, why they made him president, all those things. You look at what happens when Alexander the Great dies. Look what happens when Genghis Khan dies. Look what happens when Cromwell dies. I'm sure you could probably pull up a list on the internet that would give you a hundred other names where the guy who, the, who plays the key role, who everyone respects, takes power after the chain, the political change, is in office dies and the whole thing falls apart. That's the normal story. That's the normal tale of a revolution. You get the charismatic or the powerful figure comes in, takes the reins, dies, it falls apart. And it goes back to more or less how it started. Bonaparte is another good one. Um, Washington walked away. He walked away. People don't do that. They really don't. don't. He wasn't just, and we're not just talking about the power of the presidency. The power of the presidency wasn't Nearly then what it is now. But the power of Washington. But the power of Washington was insane. With that universal admiration, they asked him to be king. His and soldiers would have made him king in a heartbeat if he wanted to. That's a, And if he had been, you can bet that when he died, it would have fallen apart like mm-hmm. it did for everybody else. Mm-hmm. No, he took a lesser role and he walked away when it was over. And that is another precedent. Precedent. Not to be confused with presidents, a precedent <laughs> that uh, has become a thing. Most political, most presidents walk away after they're done. That's just based on the practice of Washington. They leave and they leave quietly, and they are usually they'll comment and and uh, say and so did Washington and so did Washington, but they they're no longer actively like. Uh, directing things it's a that that in itself is remarkable i remember the first time i heard that i don't even remember what president it was i was pretty young and they were like who was it it might have been i can't even remember who but i remember hearing on the news as a kid that so and so had just died he'd been president like 20 or 30 years ago and i was like wait that guy's still alive yeah like why isn't he in charge yeah exactly why isn't he in congress why exactly. is he so influential like how is it that i've how is it that he was president and then we hear nothing about him? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just bizarre. But no, it's a it's based a lot on Washington's... Almost entirely. Entirely, really. It's, it is. It's just custom. They could do those things. There's nothing... Yeah, and, and, and FDR, you know, you know, Roosevelt FDR did, did serve multiple terms. 
And it was, I mean, obviously there were extenuating circumstances. He was a wartime president during, you know, World War II, which was a very difficult time for the United States. And, and as soon as he was done serving office, they went ahead and changed the law and made it so that a president could only <laughs> so serve two terms. Right. They were like, listen, we needed him here for this. But this is not right. going to become right. the norm He's because the people who, who supported him were yeah. willing to change it. Yeah, right exactly. After. Everyone was like, we needed this. But going forward, we need it to go back to how it was, because by that point, you know, by the, the mid 1900s, it had already become a staple of American politics that if a, that a president only serves two terms, two terms. because Walk it does away. change things. It does change things. That's just remarkable. Washington was. We could get distracted and just gush about Washington at length here just because of his uh, – uh, because people with that much power almost never walk away. And what and the, that set up a stable future for the country. If he hadn't walked away there, even if he had just served as president until he died or something along those lines, it could have spelled doom for the, for the union, for the new constitutional government. Thank goodness he did what he did. That's for sure. And that he didn't walk, listen to Hamilton there. <laughs> no, and it makes sense. Hamilton's opinion makes sense. Like, it does. You can serve. What do you mean? Yeah, like, why are you walking away? What, what are you doing? We need you here. No, and, and, and objectively, if you look at what happens after Washington leaves, things are messy for a little bit. You know, there, there's there's a struggle. You know, John Adams becomes president. And and John Adams, I actually, I actually he's one of my favorite founding fathers. Not when he's president. As president, <laughs> he is he is one of one of my less favorite presidents because he he did some the terrible Alien things. Sedition acts. Alien and sedition acts are awful, and 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 that was purely John Adams. I mean that that was his thing. You know, talk about a, a, a negative legacy. Even though he had accomplished so much earlier, that I still respect him for. But but you see that you see some of these. You know, Thomas Jefferson is another another president that I also respect who, you know, I mean, the Declaration of Independence. How can you not respect that document? But there are things that he did as president and other things that he did that are are much less than respectable. And that's the interesting thing about about the founding of this country is that, you know, people say it wasn't it wasn't created by saints, but that's. That's a far stretch from from the reality, which is that these these were individuals like any other individuals. At some point during this, you're going to say something and I'm going to end up singing the line that goes with it. <laughs> the, the Declaration of Independence. Enterprising men quote it. Don't be, Don't surprised, be surprised, you guys, because I, I wrote it. Yeah, we're, we're terrible. We're big fans. What can I say? <laughs> no, and, and, and that's why we're big fans, because... Because so Hamilton really does take a different look at the American Revolution. I mean, you know, Hamilton should have a podcast called Rethinking Politics because <laughs> because that's what Hamilton is. It's rethinking the, the American Revolution. Yeah. yeah. Hamilton is, is looking at it from a different perspective and was eat it up. One more thing I'd like to talk about from that one last time clip and George Washington leaving in his farewell address is to talk about the political nature of these this early founding time period. You know, like we talked about before, George Washington was nonpartisan. He literally was not a member of a political party, which sounds insane now, 
But back then, it actually made a lot of sense because the president wasn't supposed to be a strongly political figure because his job was to enforce. His job was – I mean the executive branch because he was the executor. He's the one who – Executes the law. Who executes the law. Exactly. Thank you. And there's no need for him to be deeply concerned with politics. And you can see it with Washington where he wasn't and he was still able to do a solid job as president. Now, once President once President Washington steps down and we get a new president with John Adams and then followed by Thomas Jefferson, things start to change. And they don't change because they have to, but but they changed because of, of where people were at at the time. I mean, part of the reason Thomas Jefferson ran in the first place was because he disagreed strongly with some of George Washington's policies. And it's interesting because a lot of those policies were actually uh, created by Alexander Hamilton, who was his uh, Secretary of Treasury, which they talk about in the in the, the cabinet in battles. the musical. Yes, in the musical. Yes. yes. In fact, let me play one of those real quick. Oh, I love these. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals, we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote them. Don't act surprised, you guys, cause I wrote them. Ow! But Hamilton forgets. His plan would have the government assume state debts. Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true! Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. Don't tax the South, cause we got it made in the shade. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground. We create, you just wanna move our money around. This financial plan is an outrageous demand, and it's too many pages for any man to understand. Stand with me in the land of the free. Pray we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what gon' happen when you try to tax our whiskey. Thank you, Secretary Jefferson. Slightly edited to avoid some cursing. But here, this is this is uh, the Hamilton musical's uh, reinterpretation of the the cabinet meetings that were had when Washington was president. But they they are loosening their interpretation only as far as the uh, the rapping goes. In terms of hostility, in terms of intent, in terms of frustration, those things were all there, and it sparked a fire that eventually led. Like I said, to Thomas Jefferson running for office, you know, George Washington's deciding, hey, if there are multiple people who want to run, that's healthy and good. I'm going to step down because if, if George Washington had run again, no one would have stood against him. I mean, there there would have been no way. No chance. No chance for anyone to compete with Washington. And that's one of the most interesting things about it. Like the first election was easy. Like so easy. Like you just you just put Washington's name on and go home. Like, <laughs> like, it was a formality. Uh, he, of course, he was going to win. If he, and and that made it so you didn't have to do anything. Like the election, yeah. we think of elections today, the process, the campaigning, all those things didn't happen the first time. Washington just people wanted Washington to be president. You just, <laughs> Cast those ballots and it's over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if everyone agrees, it makes elections real easy. <laughs> yeah. But but after things got a lot more complicated, and the next several elections are all very, very close. 
Like they are, they are razor thin in terms of, in terms of, of delegates since, you know, you have the electoral college. And so right. people are voting for a delegate who's voting for the president, which we understand is, is complicated and convoluted. But you look at those number of delegates and it was off and off by just a handful, Jeez. you know, with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, when John Adams becomes president, it was three delegates oh, that, John Adams, that, close. that John That's Adams, that John Adams had over Thomas Jefferson. And there was even a chance of Thomas Jefferson to recount. contesting some of the delegates. Yeah, there there's a letter that, that Thomas Jefferson writes to someone else about that and says, yeah, there's no way in heck that I am going to demand a recount and, and, to, and to question the validity of a president this early in the process because it could destroy the country. And I'm like, good for you, Thomas Jefferson, because he's not wrong. Right. If the first election after George Washington Goes had bad. fallen apart, you know, just like we said about Again, George Washington stepping expect. down. That's, yes. what we, that's what that would have been the norm right there. Yeah. Would have been for them to be like, no, this is not fair. That's exactly what happens after after uh, Julius Caesar dies. Right. Yeah. You get this you get a civil war. Or you get, get these things where people are like, wait, no, who's next? And, mm-hmm. it, and they won't back down and they won't bow to the process or whatever it may be. So then you have John Adams as president and Thomas Jefferson. And so then, so then you develop two parties. You've got the Federalists who are represented by Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, um, primarily actually Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, as, as the play talks about, and this is actually very historically accurate, really was George Washington's right-hand man both in the Revolutionary War and in policy and politics. And and Hamilton significantly influenced George Washington. And so... Clear emotional ties there. Call me son one more time. (laughs) No, and it makes sense. I mean, they, they served through the war together. I mean... That, that's a that's a real connection, a real bond that's formed. And Hamilton was very intelligent. You know, the play gets that and right ambitious. as well. Hamilton was incredibly ambitious, incredibly intelligent, and incredibly cunning, you know. And and so he was he became, you know, a strong voice for the Federalist Party. Um anyways, John Adams becomes president as as the Federalist candidate. And then you've got Thomas Jefferson, who becomes vice president as as the uh, the Democratic Republican or Jeffersonian Republican, or even just Republican, as they would say back then, even though that party has very little resemblance <laughs> to to the current Republicans, just like the Federalists have very little resemblance to the Democratic Party as it stands today. Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's it's worth pointing out. If you're watching Hamilton and you're wondering which one is your party. Neither of them. <laughs> Neither of them. Neither of them are remotely close to your party. Neither of the parties today resemble the parties back then. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There have been several parties between. <laughs> and and Hamilton at times does try and the play does try and make some correlation and imply that the Republicans then are like the Republicans now and Hamilton then is like the Democrats now. And that is actually – it's very fun for the musical. Right. That you want to make it relevant. Make it relevant. But in terms of their actual political policies, it's definitely a stretch. It is. It's definitely a stretch. It's a stretch. You can actually see that over the next 200 years as these political parties dissolve and get replaced by other parties and and then those parties actually change and shift as the time goes on to what we have today that that they're really – that these two parties are parties built of expediency and not of anything more than that. And, and that, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties we have now aren't even the same parties 
that they were 50 years ago. Right, right. You can. Uh, it's interesting to hear people try and trace back their political ideology because the parties as they are now are not – they're not coherent philosophies. They're uh, coalitions. But But – and here's what's interesting is that – is that it doesn't feel that way. You know, the, they don't feel like coalitions. They they feel like banners that you have to get behind or get out. You know, <laughs> and that's... on a battlefield. You usually pick one. And that's the world that you grow up in. I remember as a child, and and this is embarrassing even just to think about, but, but I remember that I had my party and my party had our president and our president was in office. And you guys are going to probably calculate how old I was trying to figure out my party. Good luck. <laughs> Anyways, my, my president was in office. And regardless of what he did, I supported it. And whenever anyone talked bad about him, I was like, that person is the worst. You know, whatever issue it was they were talking about, that person was bad. My president was good. Anyone who defended my president was good. It quickly became not about the issues, but about my party you know what i mean because it was us versus them it was almost like it was almost like team sports you know team sports it's not really about which team is better it's about which team is mine you know once you've chosen your team you don't pick the other team that has better players that year unless you're a scumbag well yeah if you're there's a lot of those yeah yeah but we hate those guys (laughs) no the people who actually care about sports are the ones who stick with their team and and that's a lot of fun in sports, but when we're talking about the government of our country, it becomes a little scary. It's weird when it starts to parallel the same behavior. Yes, exactly. And you're like, wait, wait a second. Exactly. <laughs> no, I grade school. I uh, there was a in a I must have been I don't know third grade something you know really young, and we were talking about. I don't know, civics? What, are, what would they even call that in the government somehow? It was an election year and they threw, they passed around a paper and they were just curious who people were voting for. I don't even know if this is legal to actually ask children this at this age. Looking back, it seems kind of sketchy. I'm looking at pictures of four men. I have no idea who any of them are. I picked one that I thought reflected what my parents had said, but honestly, it was a blind guess. Now, it was not the one that my cousin picked who was in that same class. And when he saw what I picked, he came over to correct me and explain to me why that was such a bad decision. <laughs> of course, like any third grader can explain politics. It was basically like, that's the wrong team. Like, yeah. Like, what kind of traitor are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, I was just confused about the whole thing. But anyway. I remember having a teacher who, who belonged to the other party and voted for the other party's candidate. And it was less that I was upset with her. And it was more that I couldn't believe it. I was like, why would you vote for them? Because because here I, I know they're bad. Like I've been told that they're bad. It's and not so, a question of if they're bad. Yeah, I know they're bad. And so why would you vote for them? I don't even understand. Like I didn't even see the possibility of there being a legitimate reason. Right. You're just wondering why. And What's, Wait, what is your teacher's actual character if they're voting <laughs> for this person? Yeah, exactly. It, I, it, was, it, was, it was baffling to me, which shows you how open-minded I was as a child. Luckily, that child's not doing this podcast so we can have some actual meaningful discussions. <laughs> because if that child was doing this podcast, I'd be like, no, you're wrong. Shut up. Shut up. Right. Stick my fingers in my ear. La, 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 la. Right. Do more than wave a jersey in your face. And, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is that... 
is that when it came to Jefferson and Hamilton in this battle of the two parties, that that is exactly what what happens. In fact, let me play Hamilton's response in that cabinet battle to Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton, your response. Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Or stay mellow doing whatever you do in Monticello. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic. How do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost. You'd rather give it a sedative? A civics lesson from a slave or hey neighbor. Your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the south. We create and keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. And another thing, Mr. Age of Enlightenment, don't lecture me about the war. You didn't fight in it. You think I'm frightened of you, man? We almost died in the trench. Well, you were off getting high with the French. You think I'm frightened of you, man? <laughs> Mr. Age of Enlightenment. <laughs> you know, we were we were dying in the, in the trench while you were off getting high with the French. Uh, beautiful, beautiful lines. It is but, beautiful. But he is not discussing policy there. He is... He is name calling and and Jefferson does the same thing in the clip before. Right. And I just want you to know that if you hear this and you're like, this is funny and this is enjoyable. But I bet they were actually reasonably discussing policy. (laughs) You would be dead wrong. This is a better representation of what their discussions and what the back and forth was like at the time. Then whatever historical picture you probably have in mind of very proper men discussing things calmly. In fact, the historian David McCullough, who spent a lot of time writing and, and, and talking about the, uh, the American Revolutionary period, um, wrote that uh, – and here's his quote. If Jefferson was a Jacobin, a shameless southern libertine, and a howling atheist, Adams was a Tory, a vain Yankee scold, and if truth be known, quite mad. <laughs> You know, and those were and, and all of those were in quotes from the different newspapers right. and things of things that they actually said. And obviously, yeah. the language they use is a little bit different than than the language right. we use today. But the intensity is there. You know, howling atheist, quite mad. You know, it's it's fascinating. Right. You have to have a British accent to say them properly. To say them effectively. <laughs> quite yeah. Mad. Yeah. Exactly. But no, you're absolutely right. This is one of the things, funny things about history. If you haven't read a lot of history, you get this idea that. People a couple hundred years ago were probably very different than we oh, were. Oh, yeah. They were very civilized. Very, and, yeah. Maybe and civilized proper. The Victorian age was full of this kind of very polite. propriety and politeness. And, and politics was probably very civil. And if we could just get back to that civility, that is, that is a load of bull. Cultures vary a little bit, certainly. But people are ultimately people at the end of the day. And when they're talking politics, they're talking about this kind of what we discussed last time, this zero sum game mm-hmm. where, where those who get to who win get to impose on the others to some degree. The stakes are high and they they often fire very low. <laughs> they're going for low blows. I, howling atheist. I hadn't heard that one. Jefferson and his weird deism or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Jefferson was a one-of-a-kind thinker for sure. Yeah, he had a lot of, of interesting ideas, not just about politics. About everything, yeah. When the founders, you know, met and they and they decided to to create a new system of government, which first of all is insane that anyone thought they could do that. They they were definitely idealists and and definitely a little bit crazy. So maybe the the quite mad was 
was accurate exactly. because because all these guys were crazy to, to think this would work. Well, no, but not so crazy though, in that they had they had years of experience, not years, they had decades, even centuries in some cases, of doing these kind of experiments that they're proposing in the federal government on the state level. And so a lot of what they're they're actually bringing significant experience to it as well as the whole history of the British ideas. I've heard them, I've heard the founders described in some ways as, as just very good British citizens and in some ways <laughs> better British citizens than British, which is an interesting idea, but in that, in that they had taken a lot of the pure ideas of the British system and implemented them in a more robust way. But, but yes, to try and do something, if you're going to form a government and you're going to do something that no one else has done, there's some audacity in that. There really is. And there's a reason that there are actually a lot of governments that do that. You've just never heard of them because they <laughs> lasted all of a all of a day, right? They were in the time span of history, they're a candle that flickered flickered out, flickered briefly and then was put out. No, and I and I completely agree with you Dan and I appreciate you bringing that up because you're right because there is there was an incredible foundation that was there in terms of of, of law and of governments and of people being governed by themselves through the states that provided that framework. Right. But, but there were also a lot of people who believed that we should keep things as they were with the Articles of Confederation because in many ways it was working. There were some serious issues where they weren't. Yeah. But a lot of people thought that they could use the existing system and just fix those issues. But instead, these delegates got together and said, we're going to completely throw that out. And create this whole new government. And that really was crazy. That really was crazy. That was. That, that's a good point. <laughs> that you, that the idea of them having a government was was built on foundations. But they already had one. You know what I mean? It would be right. like if the states got together now and said, hey, we have this United States government that's pretty, pretty, pretty okay. But there are some issues. So we're going to scrap that one. And we're going to create a new U.S. government. The states are going to approve it. And once they approve it, that old one is going to be defunct. And we're going to start doing voting and things for the new government. And in a word, that's why we've never had a constitutional convention. Since then, yes. Since then. The states actually could do that through constitutional convention. Yeah, there's actually, there's actually a legal system in place for that to happen. And no one dares actually call one and show up for fear that it would do something like that. Yeah, for fear that it would cause the entire system to collapse, which is a legitimate fear. Which is ironic because that's how we got this one. In the first now place. Now we're scared to do it again. Yeah, anyway, funny. As I was trying to make the point earlier, I'm glad I was even able to remember after a tangent like that. <laughs> it's like you had another point. I did. We never oh, even oh. hit my point. Was that when they made this system... They did not envision popular elections like we have them today. And the delegate system that, that they envisioned was for a completely different purpose. The purpose was not for these delegates to carry the opinion of the people and then elect. The, the question was not that these delegates would would you know pick up your 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 vote and then carry that and vote for the president on who you wanted to vote for no the system was built for you to pick a delegate and then that delegate to then find the right person to be president you know and there would be individuals who were good candidates who would talk to those delegates and those delegates would be able to see who was a viable candidate and then that person would become president and that's not what happens now and even 
early on that's not what happened with right, with Jefferson and Hamilton it quickly became because they quickly turned to the people because they weren't sure they can convince the delegates so they turned to the people to then pressure the delegates and the system quickly became corrupted and i know what a lot of you might be thinking is isn't that a good thing you know isn't democracy what we want right that's a step that's a step away from a republican form of election which we don't really think of where you're you're electing a representative to then go and vote for you basically with that with the with the electoral college and that's how it was initially envisioned but you're right that it became significantly more democratic almost immediately and and i'm not speaking for or against that even though even though i i i would be happy to because there is something to be said about us holding up democracy as this end all be all of political systems because the reality is is that in a true democratic system everyone would vote on every single issue you know there wouldn't be a legislature that would create laws the people would create laws. So if, you know, here I am in Utah, and if the Utah legislature needs to decide about, you know, whether or not to build an overpass or or whether or not, you know, to change this law or that, every particular law about the governance of the state, we would have to vote every single one of those laws. And in Utah, that means, I mean, there's, I think it's like 800 bills are are put through the state legislature every year in a matter of six weeks. So that means as a citizen of Utah, I would have to vote 800 times minimum because sometimes you have to vote multiple times on one bill. Then you add, I have to vote for all my my city issues too. So I got to vote for my city issues. That's another few hundred. Then I have to vote for the federal issues. And that's where it gets out of control because now we're talking thousands upon thousands of times that I have to vote on a, a number of issues. Well, yeah, and how would you even propose things, and how would those things be organized? It's yeah, and it become very quickly ridiculous. It become a nightmare. But even if in some utopian world we created an encrypted, foolproof system that allowed every single citizen to be a voting member of the governing body, there was no time for anyone to do that. You know what I mean? What I've just described is a full time job. Yes. Yes. To do any to do any one of those tiers for that time is a full time job. Yeah, exactly. And so when you try and do all of them, it becomes quickly impossible. In fact, it would be a full time job just to read some of those federal bills. So obviously, that doesn't work. It's not feasible to make that work, which is where we get into representation. And that when people talk about democracy, it's really what they talk about. As Dan said, it's some kind of republic where instead of voting on every issue, you elect a candidate who then goes and represents you and can then spend all his time studying those issues, reading those bills and making policy. And so so when we talk about the delegates, it's not necessarily better that it's a popular vote. And I'm not saying that we should take away the popular vote for the presidency. That's really not not something that I'm that I'm crazy focused on. What I'm more focused on is just the nature of how things shifted so early on in our country's creation. Because not only did the delegates shift how, how things happened, but also the focus shifted and the policies and the candidates became much more polarizing. And that happened very quickly where it wasn't, how do you feel on this issue or how do you feel on this issue? Because there are real issues that they're addressing at this time, but it became, 
well, are you Federalist or are you Republican? Because if you're a Republican, you're dead to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and like we said before, and those parties weren't the same parties we have now. So if you think – so if you believe that you're 100% aligned with the party that you're in right now, the odds of everyone being aligned with the parties that are 100%. in existence 100% is crazy because because the parties are very specific and people are very – varied. You may believe that you like your party more than the other party, and that's just fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saying, you know what, your party represents you a hundred percent without fail every single time. If they're if they're if a candidate is your party, then they might as well be you, then then kudos to you. But the rest of us have to live in a world <laughs> where it's not quite so simple and it's not quite so black and white. No, how could and how could it be when you've got like if you look at how party platforms are made, you've got competing interests in the party, the demanding time, the demand resources of the government to meet their desires or their needs or their whatever it is they want, their goals. And you get these that all come together within a single party. And depending on how many votes they can bring to the party, they're going to have different amounts of pull. <laughs> they're going to have different amounts of effect. And that's why, like, movements that capture a lot of momentum and passion in the time. Good ones lately? Tea Party. More importantly today, Black Lives Matter. These capture enormous amounts of, uh, of focus and resources, and, uh, and they're going to have a bigger say in it. If, if that weird ebb and flow that occurs within a party based on the size of the factions with their different interests happens to align perfectly with you, it's because you're not thinking very, you're not thinking independently. They're telling you what your ideas are. If you've reached that point where it represents you perfectly, I'm going to go ahead and speculate that you're not actually thinking for yourself. You're probably just hearing what they say and nodding along. And I don't think most people are like that. I think most people have clear points where they look at their party and they're like, yeah, I don't love that. Yeah, that's like, I don't care for that much. Or do we really need to do that? Why are we wasting our time on these issues? Or I, th I think all of them, have, everybody pretty much has things they could point to in their own party, perhaps idiots in their own party where they're like, that guy is one of us? Really? This person's representing me? And here's a perfect example of that. You know, we've got an election coming up. And last I checked, there are quite a few feelings about it. <laughs> and just a few, just a few, quite a few, but few. But a lot of the people that I've talked to and experiences vary, but a lot of people that I've talked to, they know who they're going to vote for. And they're going to vote for one of two people. They're going to vote for Trump or Biden. And, and I have yet to meet someone who is voting for one of those two people because they love that person. And they're like, this is who we need as president. And there are people who believe that for both of those candidates. But more and more, the people I talk to are like, I am voting for candidate A or candidate B because I cannot have the other candidate in office. I am scared of what the other candidate is going to do. I don't want to be robbed. This is what we were talking about in the last, po the last podcast, that, uh, that idea that you're that if the other person has power over you, which they do, if they mm -hmm. if someone else with different ideas is a president, that, that they have actual power that they can exercise over you. That is not a good place to be. That's, mm -hmm. People don't want that. And they, get, they, they get really freaked out. 
One, one fun thing you should look into if you're listening to this. Go look into how many times people have said, I don't think when their term is up that this president is going to leave office. If you feel like that's a new thing with Trump. That is not a new thing. It is not a new thing. In fact, in fact it's a regular thing. It's as sure as clockwork that somebody is sufficiently frightened of the current president that they're worried when the time is up and they lose an election or their two terms are up and they're not going to leave. I, I remember, I think it was when Obama was running for his second term that there were a lot of Republican people who said he's going to get elected for the second term and then he's never going to leave. He is going to stay president forever. And he's young, guys. So that could be a long time. Like I <laughs> become dictator I, for life. I distinctly remember people saying that. Not not just pundits, but actual people in real life that I was talking to who were genuinely afraid that that Obama was going to become a king. Just like people are afraid that Trump is going to do the same thing. Yeah, I, I was looking at it the other day. I found I found news articles about Bush. And they were afraid Bush was going to do that. When Thomas Jefferson got elected, that election, the election of 1800, there was – that was one of the – one of the big concerns was that if Jefferson became president, there would be another revolution. That he was he was this French-loving Jacobin and that's what they mean by Jacobin is that, you know, it's the party in France – for revolution, that he was going to bring the French Revolution over here and destroy the entire federal government and restart it over again with him as the head. That's what people were actually saying. This is my favorite line when you see a president running for, or you see a president campaigning. This campaign, this election is about the soul of America or the heart of America or the course of America or the <laughs> insert enormous word with with huge implications for the the future of america here <laughs> like every president every campaigning person has said that at some point it seems like it's it's so yeah anyway yeah look the, at, the stakes have never been higher stakes have never been higher this is about the soul of america it's uh, i frankly if you've looked at a couple elections closely it's boringly predictable it's why we're talking about the election this way instead of telling you about the latest thing that a president has said. <laughs> that a, that a, <laughs> because that's not actually useful. It's not useful. No, and they I'll, said the same things the last guy did, and the same things the guy after them is going to say. No, and and if even half of those predictions were were true, you know, America would have been completely destroyed hundreds of years ago, <laughs> and yet we're still here. Which means that obviously. There's some exaggeration. And like we said before about the emotions, as the emotions run higher and as you develop this idea where the other side is out to get you and if the other side gets into office, everything you hold dear is going to be destroyed. Danger. Yeah. Yeah. That's because the thing is, is that whether or not that tr that is true doesn't really matter because your brain and your body will respond to it like it is true. Kind of like we talked about risk assessment in episode with three with COVID-19. Right. Fear is... Fear is real. And it has a crazy level of effect on the human body. And that's something that you can't ignore. Yeah. And if we seem flippant laughing about this, it's in an effort to help you. You, you don't see clearly when you're afraid. You see... You are hyper-focused on one thing and you can respond to it quickly. It's a really, fear is extremely useful in its place. 
out of its place and out of proportion, it becomes remarkably blinding. No, and 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 look at look at how people talk about politics today. So many people it's driven by fear. It's driven by fear, and so many people will refuse to talk about politics because of how high the stakes are, how high the tension is. You know, families are getting broken up over political elections. And so a lot of people say, no, I want no part of this. I'm done. And they basically recuse themselves from the entire political system, which is not good either. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it's something... It might, I mean, it might be better for their health in some it ways. It might be, absolutely. <laughs> to not live that, not be frightened all the time and angry. And, and it's something and that, right. it's that I've caught myself doing where I've said, you know what? I can't, I can't handle this. You know, it's it's too much and just step back. But the problem is, is that when we get people either doing that or getting involved, but not getting involved looking at the issues, but getting involved attacking the other side, we just go in circles, you know. And that's something that we see in Hamilton. You know what I mean? Going back to Hamilton real quick, the musical. There's a line in the... The one last time that you didn't hear where Jeff, sorry, Hamilton comes into Washington's office and he says, whatever you heard, sir, Jefferson started it. <laughs> it's beautiful. It captures that circles, the spinning circles. And with, with Hamilton, Hamilton was a big part of this political fighting, right? He, he was, he didn't start it, but he was part of it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put any blame on him, but I'm trying to paint a picture here where where these two parties kept fighting and fighting and eventually you have Aaron Burr and and Hamilton coming head to head in these political fights and this name calling and it ends with Hamilton basically attacking Aaron Burr so ferociously that not only does Aaron Burr lose the presidential election to to Jefferson but he he feels like he has been personally attacked by Hamilton and so he challenges him to a duel and he kills him, right? And that's how Hamilton dies. This man of incredible genius who was there as, as George Washington's right-hand man during the revolution, who was there at the Constitutional Convention, who was in the first cabinet of the United States. And once again, I'm not defending his policy. I'm talking about how influential this man was and how much of a of a stake he had in this country and the forming of this country and and he ended up dying at 37 because of political infighting you know now that we've 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 talked about hamilton and we've talked about the election of of 2020 which i think is the most important election the united states has ever faced it's really about the soul and heart of the America. soul and heart i mean if if candidate never been higher if if the candidate that I oppose wins, you know it it may all be over for us. <laughs> no, but but seriously, as we're coming to twenty twenty and looking at this election, and I'm looking and watching Hamilton, and that's the reason we were talking. We decided to talk about it as this podcast because I'm watching Hamilton, and I'm thinking this is what's happening now. Like there's there's obviously differences. I mean the Whigs alone, but in terms of. <laughs> In terms That's of really way to get way to pin the real the, the real, real differences is the wigs they're wearing. <laughs> because seeing these candidates and seeing the things people are saying and how upset people are, it just feels the same. And it feels the same in that people don't feel like they really have an option. You have to choose A or B, and there's no other choice. But here's the thing. That's not true. 
And I know what you're thinking. Oh, you can vote third party and throw away my vote. No, that's not what I'm saying. If you vote third party, you are throwing away your vote in terms of whether or not A or B wins. You're not going to affect the election. You are not, not going, going to affect the election. Third party candidate's not going to win. And that is the purpose of voting, is to affect the election. The purpose of voting is not to make a political statement. It's to elect a political leader. Right. And you could argue before you – I know you're going somewhere else with yeah, this. Yeah, so go. You could argue – that uh, the third party votes do play an important role because people campaign to get votes. People voting blocks, what's the word? Party platforms and ideas shift to incorporate more votes. So if you get a large group of people who vote third party, even a small group of people who thir- vote third party, um, that group is a group that they can then identify and in the future try and pull into their tent, try and pull into their votes. And so Actually, voting third party does pull the parties in the direction of those third parties. And the more votes they get, the more tangible that poll is. But Brad's right that in the short term, it does absolutely nothing. <laughs> it does not affect who's going to get elected in that election other than to pull votes from one of the two candidates. Yeah, and and, and thank you for that clarification because I was trying to make a point. But the reality is, is that I have voted for third party candidates for that exact reason. And, and especially especially with how the Electoral College is set up, a lot of areas, you know, for example, here in Utah, Utah is a very is a very Republican state. So in terms of the general election, if I vote for Trump or I vote for Biden will make no difference because Utah's vote is going to Biden. And so, <laughs> I mean, sorry, to Trump. Oh, that was, I thought you were joking. You actually misspoke. <laughs> I just misspoke. I'm saying so many names, but that would have been pretty good sarcasm. It would have been pretty good sarcasm. I was just going to laugh and you could have moved on. <laughs> Anyways, and so and so, if I vote for a third party, like, like Dan said, it does allow me to... To say, hey, in the future, if you move this direction, you can ensure you can, more votes. You can ensure more, more votes, exactly. But but the fact that I already know my vote is worthless is a reflection of how broken the system currently is. Now, you can go across the United States and look at the 300 or so million people, and the number of those people who live in an area that is not a swing state is most of them. You know, they're talking about how Texas may be a swing state, you know, with this coming election, which is fantastic because there are a lot of people in Texas who are going to have a vote that matters, (laughs) you know, but. Well, and that's the thing is, even within that, even if you say Texas is a swing state, whether your vote matters actually depends more on which district. Which district. Right. Yes. Because a lot even, of the districts are going to be Even if you're in a state, yeah. that's a swing state. See, if you're in Utah, it doesn't matter where you are in Utah, your vote doesn't count. If you live in Texas, depending on where you live, it might count. It might count. It might determine whether or not your district goes red or blue. Yes. Thank you for that clarification because that actually makes that it makes worse. It even narrower. <laughs> it even makes it narrower. The vast majority of cases, voting is a, is a formality. It's a... It's a token gesture. So the, the picture I'm trying to paint is that in a few months, you know, there's going to be an election and we're all and we're all going to vote, you know, or a lot of us are going to vote. And the majority of those votes will mean nothing except for a final tally of to see who got the popular vote. But in terms of who gets elected, they will mean nothing. And on top of that, those votes that did mean something, a lot of those people are going to be voting for someone simply because they're afraid of the other candidate, which means they're not actually voting for someone that they really want to represent them. And that really captures the circles you were talking about. Yeah, and that's where we're at. Is that really where we want to be? Like when you're talking about moving in circles, a good way to move in circles is for everybody to vote 
for people that they don't want because there's something else worse in a different direction. Like it's, it's, I'm <laughs> the Republicans elect somebody based on the fact they hate the Democrats. The Democrats elect somebody based on the fact that they hate the Republicans. And you end up with people that no one, <laughs> you end up in a, a lot of cases with, with people where you're like, is this, is this it? Is this, you can, you can, any one of the 300 plus million people can run for president if you're older than 35. And and this is what we've got. And I don't like any of them. And I know so many people who are like that, but they're not they're not even looking at their candidates often. They're looking at the other party's candidates and how much they hate them. And that's the it ends up with a, a world where nobody is moving towards the things they want to move toward. They're just moving in away from the other party. And that's a that's such a bizarre place to be in terms of like if you have a something that even resembles a coherent political philosophy, what are the odds that that happens to go in the direction of your ideas? Zero. Like yeah. it's it's just it it creates a political system driven by other things than the idea, than coherent ideas and reasoned policies and these things that you hope government produces. Right? <laughs> Any of these things that you hope are the outcome of good government are less likely. Because of this weird process where we're picking people based on people we don't like rather than things we do. So that leads us to our our one very simple proposal. Scrap the two-party system because it's not working (laughs) and we need something else. And that's the beautiful thing is that this is something that should definitely cross party lines in terms of appeal is that it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. It doesn't. And we can make changes. This is not, there's not some immutable law that says we have to have a two party system. You know, the number of countries that have multi-party systems far outweigh the number of countries that have a system like ours. Yeah. And so if you're wondering, like, wait, well, then why why hasn't that happened? What would it take? Would it just take a lot of people changing their minds and forming some other party? No, it's more than that. It is more than that. There are forces at work. Like Brad said, it doesn't have to be this way. But to change it, you would have to change some laws. There are some – you would have to change a few things to make the whole – to change the big picture stuff. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. You no, know, these are I, tiny hinges. Yeah, this, exactly. This giant door of two-party system slides on very tiny hinges that can be easily changed. And 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 you may ask yourself, well, if if these tiny hinges could be moved to fix things, why haven't they been? And the answer to that is very simple. Who decides whether or not we change those hinges? The people in office. Who are the people in office? They're one of two parties. <laughs> those two parties have zero incentive to destroy the system that allows them to exist. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party have incredible power, right? Because they control at the worst slightly less than half of of government and at best the government right right and and that's a lot of power like we talked about with washington walking away from power neither party is willing to walk away from that power yeah so they until they're, they're pushed to they're very hesitant to change the system just look at how like the democratic party when uh last back when it was hillary versus Bernie Sanders and how uh, how many things were in place to make sure Bernie Sanders didn't actually have a chance. <laughs> and then they changed some of them. Some of the things got changed. But there's a, 
and part of it is you've got to you've got to distinguish two things. There's the political figures that are a member of a party, and they have their own beliefs and their own their own positions. There are the average members of a political party, the 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 the, the normal citizens who support that party, or whether through funding or through votes. And then there's an entirely different group that nobody re- that, that nobody no one even out. thinks about. It's the bureaucratic group that runs the party. That group has an entirely different set of interests than the other two. That group, to whom the money goes, to whom the party rules, and the election process is determined, the final election and the rules for the final election are determined by law. All of the elections to pick the Democratic candidate or to pick the Republican candidate are determined by the party. You know, right now you have a a first-past-the-post system where, for example, in Utah, you have four districts. Each district has a race. For the House, yeah. For for the House, yes. Obviously. No, Utah is special. They have four senators. (laughs) I mean, you guys may be jealous. Yeah, yeah, throwing that off. You never know who's listening. You may not know that there are always two senators. Two senators for every state and then a certain number of, (laughs) of representatives for the House based off of population. Anyways, so like I said about the us having too much fun, face-to-face, it changes everything. It and, does. And, we harass each other. And it's it's fun for us. It may sound terrible for you guys, <laughs> and I apologize for that. I'm too tired to reach over and punch him in the shoulder, so you're just going to have to live with it. Anyways, so there's four districts, and in each district, you have a first-past-the-post election. And what that means is that one candidate wins. And you're like, well, duh, there's no other system. Actually not true. There are several different other systems and I'm just going to give you one potential one. Wait, can I just point out why that's so important? Like you said first past the post wins, meaning one candidate ha- one candidate's going to win, everyone else is going to lose. So if you've got a race and you've got five people, the first one wins. Mm-hmm. Whose second doesn't matter at doesn't all. Doesn't matter at all. So there's no reason for someone who's going to be second to even participate if they knew ahead of time. And let alone third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Which is why so many candidates actually run opposed every election. Run unopposed. Unopposed, yes. Every election. Right. Right. Because it's a, it'd be a waste of time to try and push back against this candidate in this particular area. As long as it's winner take all, it's going to push itself to 50 plus percent. Because people want to be in the winning group. Because the only way to be sure you're going to be in the winning group is to get over 50% of the support. Yeah. So the tent of the parties gets wider and wider. It gets more diverse. It gets less coherent. And it means that the party is less representative of the members inside. Right. So you have people who are Republicans because of one issue. And if it's a Republican, it's probably abortion, right? <laughs> you have people who are Democrats for one issue. And right today, I'd probably say it's racism, but it might be different another day. And it's going to be different for each of the members. You know what I mean? Right. There are going to be Republicans who are doing it for a number of issues and Democrats doing it for a number of issues. But that doesn't mean they agree with all of the other issues. Or they may even agree with four or five of the big issues. But there are two issues that they don't think about. Because they don't agree with the right. party. So would you say that party represents them? Uh, well, sort of? Yeah, exactly. Maybe. The bigger it is, the less representative it's going to be. The less likely it is to coincide with your interests. The less likely it is to align with, with you. And so you get people don't realize how many people don't vote. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they have some idea. Most people don't vote. They're disaffected by the system. They don't feel like it represents them enough for it to even matter. They don't feel like it, like it is even worth their time to look into it. 
And what's, what's sad is that in a lot of cases, they're probably right. Their time is probably better spent elsewhere because at best case, there's somebody who agrees with a few things that they think. Going back to, to my example, if you instead have multi-member districts, so let's say, for example, Utah, because Utah is so small, and this would be different, for example, in California or Texas, where there are so many more representatives, they could have many districts that are still multi-member. But in Utah, it would probably just be one because there's only four. And so you would have one district and you'd have one race to fill those four spots, which means the top four candidates would get into office. And now you have the potential, as Dan was talking about, for there to be many more teams in the race. You know, and here's and here's a great way of looking at it. Uh, there was a Pew Research study done on the demographics of Utah, and it estimated that about 54% of Utahns were either re- strongly Republican or leaned Republican. And then 30% were strongly Democrat or lean Democrat. And then you had the rest who were neither, right? And so you're talking about a state where a little more than half is Republican, which is why every year, like we said, with the, every, every election, it goes to the Republican presidential candidate. But with these four districts, what you'd assume is that two of those would always be Republican, and then the other two would vary and usually have one Democrat, sometimes two, sometimes an independent. But that's not what happens. Most of the time you have three or even four of the district seats are filled by Republicans. And so Utah looks like a hundred percent Republican. <laughs> and that's not even taking into account that that 54 percent Republican isn't actually a Republican. That's not even looking at that issue that we we're talking about before. That's just looking at if we all in Utah who said they were a Republican were 100% Republican, they're not even accurately representing that because of the way the districts are set up, which goes into another issue of gerrymandering. And you get into all of these issues and they all stem from the fact that we have this, this system that is winner takes all that encourages two parties. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It it makes no sense to me that you can have what what what, what percent of the population is the Green Party? Five percent, maybe less, probably less, probably less. I don't know. I don't know. But if a group has, but if a group has five percent of the vote, why is it that they should get zero percent representation? Yeah. That. In what way? How on earth? It just it just kills me. I I hate the word representation frankly, as it's used in politics today, because I rarely feel represented, even if it were someone in a party that I picked. Like I, it's, it's almost the odds that they, I actually feel like they share any of my ideas are very, very low. And so it's like, how many people are actually getting represented? Well, I don't know. I wonder if the, the congressional approval rating is probably not a good basis, but, <laughs> but it's really, but really it's a low. start. <laughs> but it's, it's a, a start. But it's a start. Is it single digit yet? It's got to be pushing single digits. What is the congressional? It's really It's low. not good. It's barely double digits, low double digits. Congressional approval rating if you do polls. But anyway, it's it's just it's a silly idea in a lot of cases like like and it and allows for the gerrymandering. Like you said, these kind of things where if you're in a state where you make up 49% of the vote or if you're in a district where you make up 49% of the vote, you are not represented at all. At all. You're one guy is going to have nothing in common with you. And that's that's such a... And he'll only have some things in common with the with 51% who voted for him. Right. Going back to to the play Hamilton 
and going back to the American Revolution, when when the American Revolution started, you know, everyone assumes that all the American people were like, hoorah, let's get this done. But that wasn't actually the case. There were there were people on both sides and and the loyalists, the British loyalists who didn't believe in revolution, they did have a legitimate argument. And the legitimate argument was we don't want things to change. You know what I mean? Yeah, things are not that bad. Things are not that bad. If they're bad at all, maybe they even liked it. Exactly. And and that basically when you come down to it is the same argument for the two-party system. Because like we said before, there are so many issues. So clearly the only argument is it's not bad enough that it's worth trying something new. And and we believe just like Hamilton and so many others did then, that that's not a good enough argument. <laughs> when there is so much bad going on, you're not going to let things stand just because, because it's work to change it. And just like then, and just like in Hamilton, we need to rise up and do something about that. And luckily, we don't have to fight a war to make change. Right. Change is so much easier to affect now than really it's ever been before. But it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And it just takes a few people dedicated and willing to make a difference. And so the ways that you would do that, as we indicated, were you've changed the first past the post laws over the general elections. You you can do that at the county and you can do that at the local levels. Uh, obviously, there's elections at different different areas. Just as importantly, you change the way the primary candidates are selected in the parties. So each party has a slightly different system and they have their bylaws for how the party gets a primary candidate. You can do a lot of different things. You can, I think you should do the same thing as what we're proposing in the general election where you have more than one seat at stake and it's, and it's proportional to the, the votes. Um, you can also do something like ranked voting for things where there really is just one person like a presidential candidate who would allow you to get better candidates. And with that, thank you for listening.